Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 5th of February. In this episode, we discuss General Motors' 2035 deadline, past which they will no longer make internal combustion vehicles. Uh, we discuss the extremely weak figures for the oil majors in 2020, the Biden administration's as yet vague ambitions to boost offshore wind, Panasonic's retreat from solar manufacturing, and the trillion dollars bound up in oil and gas pipeline developments, including Nord Stream 2. I just thought I'd ask the question, Harry, on the, on the oil majors, another set of record losses or, or end of year losses, and there's going to be another year of losses coming. How, do, how should we value an oil company now? Because it seems to me one of the comments you made in that story is that BP and Shell, who've done a lot more to move away from being an oil company, as is Equinor, are valued on the same basis as ExxonMobil and Chevron. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the fact is that while we think that BP, Shell, Equinor, well, I suppose Equinor have, but BP and Shell certainly, while we think they've done a lot for the energy transition so far, they really they haven't yet. Um, I think that's what's being reflected in their, the fact that their stock prices aren't diverging from, from the American majors. I think that they maybe will once we start seeing their, their pledges starting to actually come into action. So actually starting to see them really pushing forward in the development of renewable energy projects in the, in the case of BP and sort of clean fuel projects in the case of Shell. I think valuing them at this point is is really difficult. The way they're going to carve value out of their existing business models is going to be really interesting. Uh, ExxonMobil, interestingly, probably is the easiest one to value because its business model is very much staying the same. Um, you'll just be able to work out sort of the size of the oil market and what sort of market share it's hoping to do, uh, hoping to aim for. Yeah, well, hold on, hold on. So the problem with that is that the size of the oil market compared to the size of reserves that exist in the oil market that can be dug out of the ground at the price which is currently profitable. So if the price of oil falls, it doesn't matter what percentage of the market they get. If our projections are right, and I know they are, because I know that everyone else's has, has been absolutely slammed by that General Motors decision. Everyone was saying, oh, there won't be any more than 330 million EVs by 2040 in the world. That's it. And uh, some, you know, the high ones said 400 million. And then General Motors says, yeah, but we'll be out of the market by then. You know, we, we won't make any after 2035. That has suddenly shown that our forecasts are much more likely to be right. It could be by 2040, 900 or close to a billion cars will be EVs on the planet. And as a result, the demand for oil to fuel as a fuel is going to fall dramatically. And if, if you if you automatically go for that to happen, EVs have got to become a lot bigger, but so has hydrogen. If hydrogen becomes a lot bigger, then maybe the aviation market would have switched by that time as well. Oh dear, they don't have the aviation market and they don't have cars. What have they got? And the glut of assets is going to got to fall in value based on supply and demand. Yeah, I mean, and that's why we're seeing so many um, so many write downs at the moment, and and obviously companies are trying to find things to blame that on um often for, i mean for exxon mobile they're blaming on the fact that they overvalued their acquisition of xto i think back in uh, around sort of 10 years ago but <laughs> the, the, re- the reality is that it is because they are they've realized that there are certain reserves that they have they won't be able to be they won't be profitable when they put them out the ground and uh, i think especially when you've got sort of carbon taxes sort of chipping away at the pushing up the break-even price for oil, that's when you really start to see um, a very small number of assets that ExxonMobil or Chevron will be able to pull out of the ground profitably. I mean, I know currently they've got a sort of break-even price of around sort of $60, $60 per barrel, and I know that their consolidation plans are hoping to bring that down to around sort of 35 
But when you see how cautious they've been in their assumptions for carbon taxes, if carbon taxes suddenly start to take off as we think they will, then the break-even price will not, they won't be able to get a break-even price of this. And if oil prices linger around the sort of 40 to 50 dollars per barrel mark, then yeah, the the losses that ExxonMobil have seen this uh, this year will repeat themselves. And they, I mean, they certainly won't be able to keep paying out the dividends that they've been paying. Well, they, they won't even be able to continue operating a couple of years at that level, and they'll run out of cash. Yeah, and I mean, they certainly won't see any um, any support through the Biden administration. I think we saw that through the fact that he's ruled out fossil fuel subsidies this week. Uh, so I think they should be valued based on how much of their revenues are extracted from renewables. I think the renewables revenues should be considered bomb-proof, and the oil revenue, oil assets should not be. I think that's where Moody's and everybody has, has got it completely back to front. I think they're valuing BP as the same as ExxonMobil because they're, they're valuing them based on their oil assets, which is, of course, as the oil price moves. And this is going to be a historic move. It's not going to be one caused by a blip in the market by a pandemic. It's going to be a slow, gradual deserting of that of fossil fuels. And as a result, it will be permanent. Then, then the, that way of valuing it based on physical hard assets. I mean, you don't you don't take many businesses and value them based on assets. You value them based on the um, cash they can generate from uh, operating those assets. But this is a peculiar valuation. It's held up the whole stock market. See, I, I'm also worrying that the stock market ha- has to go through at least one or two significant crashes between now and 2050 because it's built around the value of core energy assets. And, it, and if you take those away, I mean, maybe over time they just gradually ebb, ebb away and other things come to, to hold up the stock market. But it strikes me that, that if there's sudden moves like there was in the pandemic on oil price, we could end up with a a completely crashed global stock market. Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent that's already happened in the oil sector. I think the energy sector as a whole is protected by the fact that utilities are a fairly safe bet. I mean, there's always going to be a need for electricity. Um, and I mean, that demand's not going not, to, certainly not going to shrink. So I think, and I think the fact that investors have already sort of piled out of the oil majors to a fairly large extent is quite telling. And I think that that doesn't necessarily mean the whole stock market will sort of collapse around it, uh, especially as you've got these sort of new companies like Orsted, which have got a huge amount of value that they've sort of picked up in the last couple of years, same as sort of next era. And they've also sort of overtaken the historic sort of majors in terms of their market cap. So I think the energy sector as a whole is quite protected, but I think the oil market certainly almost needs to be viewed as a separate entity to the energy market at this point. And I think it's difficult to see whether or not you include people like BP and Shell in that. It's interesting actually seeing the tactics that they're taking, because I mean, ExxonMobil's argument the whole time has been, we'll leave the renewable energy to the utilities and we'll do what we, we do best. And to a certain extent, that's what we've heard from Shell this week. I mean, they've basically said that they're not going to bother with sort of renewable infrastructure projects to a certain extent, and they're going to shift towards cleaner fuels. Whether or not they do that incrementally, which would be probably a disaster, I don't know. But if this is, is going to be a shift towards hydrogen and biofuels for them, then that could be, could be one way of them sort of seeing a recovery in their value. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they include hydrogen in that. But I mean, this is going to be a flat out sprint for hydrogen. I mean, the the number of new assets that are emerging are huge. That's going to be a splintering market. And, uh, you know, if you want to go after that, you've got to chase it hard and and make it 100% what you're going after. But right now, if one of the um, big oil companies said we're going to chase the hydrogen market, their share price would collapse because their their traditional investors will say, no, we don't believe in that. And that will be... 
It's, it's yeah. very hard for But go, go to the third story. President Biden talks about backing offshore winds and doubling the size of the winds. Yeah, OK, we know that that's he's, he's not a renewables expert. We know that they haven't got any offshore wind, so you can't you can't really double it. But the other part of that story was end subsidies for fossil fuels. What do you think ending subsidies for fossil fuels looks like? Uh, I mean, for the US economy, it's a good thing. I mean, it means that we'll see. I think it's 20 billion they put in per year sort of directly. I mean, there will be indirect subsidies. There's no doubt that those will continue to some sort of extent. But um, well, the, the IMF valued them at, you know, in the trillions. And a lot of it is through tax agreements when you build a plant or a factory. And so when as soon as you build it, that tax thing stays with it for a period or for life. Those subsidies can't be withdrawn. If you, know, if you gave someone a, 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 a billion dollars of tax relief to pay for the capital expenditure on a, a new coal plant, you can't get that back. So, so you're, we're only talking about any subsidies that are still active. Yeah, I think the main thing that it will it will show is it will just sort of deter any investment in new fossil fuel projects um, and it will accelerate the rate at which we see projects retire early. Um, I mean, if a project is uneconomic and you can install a cheaper solar and wind farm, especially under the Biden administration, the incentives will be there to do so. And I think it will see a huge acceleration in the number of coal plants, for example, in the US that we see retired and converted into um, sort of renewables plus storage, maybe plus hydrogen, which obviously is a really exciting prospect. Uh, I think... Obviously, yeah, we can't overstate the role that Joe Biden's had in this, but certainly we'll pull, it'll pull industry along nicely and it certainly won't slow things down to the same extent we saw through the Trump era. Okay. And, and the other thing you, you pointed out was that they've only got about 47 megawatts of offshore wind. Doubling it is nothing. Um, what, what, what does he really mean by that? But, but the one thing you didn't think he meant, but that you did point out, was that he could double the number of acres of water that is allocated to wind. Couldn't America be far more active in this whole approach and specify areas that should be for wind farms, increase them, put some more money behind the permitting process, um, lower the hurdles of the permitting process. And generally, that, that's, the, that's the best thing that the government can do here is get out of the way. Yeah, and I think that's what we're hoping for with the statement to double offshore wind is rather than doubling the 42 megawatts they've currently got installed, actually just doubling the capacity that the US will have to build out offshore wind as a whole through the next sort of 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and that could through, be that through sort of developing port infrastructure, sort of promoting the number of installation vessels that they're going to need to actually build the wind farms. But as you said, yeah, it double, doubling the amount of sort of physical space that they've got in federal water for offshore wind farm could see the amount of federal waters rather than 21 gigawatts in the long run for offshore wind rise up to 41 gigawatts so that's obviously a huge hugely beneficial to the u.s energy system and hugely beneficial to biden's plan to reach net zero electricity by 2035 i think yeah, other... he doesn't have to build those all he has to do is let people do them uh, yeah he doesn't exactly. have to spend the money to build them yeah. and I, possibly I think... give them some kind of subsidy yeah, and I think what needs to be done, and I think that's this is what he's hoped to sort of instigate through the orders he released this week, is a review to the the planning procedure. So he's he's in, he's launched some sort of review of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management Environment environmental impact assessment so they'll be reviewing that and hopefully seeing the projects that have been sort of tangled up in that sort of move uh, a lot more quickly. So if if all the right policies are put into place during, say, the next year, it would take, what, another seven years to actually see projects completed after that? Seven yes, years I mean, from the day that you think about it. 
you know, uh, one of the big pro things in, in wind is to, in order to make it bankable, you've got to measure the wind for a couple of years and be certain that the wind is going to be where you, you want it to be. Uh, all of that's done. So it won't be seven. Harry's the expert. Sorry, Harry. Yeah, I mean, so seven years it would be would be a rapid project. I think the thing about the US is that they've given 10 years for the investment tax credit they put forward. Um, and as we've seen for sort of with Armstrong, when people like to sort of push up to the right up to the deadline for this. So um, with that ending in 2025, we'll see projects really rush towards the 2035 deadline. So that's when we'll see sort of the real sort of peak in US offshore wind, if, um, if you like. Um, and, and it's still mostly focused in the southwest area off like Florida and Virginia and that sort of area, isn't it? Currently, in terms of um, existing project developments in Virginia, that sort of area. But we've seen obviously huge projects from New York in terms of offshore wind. Um, oh, so it's right along the so gen yeah generally it's along the uh, Atlantic coast. But as soon as we see floating wind sort of emerge, as we have actually this week through one of the diesel pilots, we will really start to see it, it grow in California. Obviously, where the ambition for clean energy is really high. Much of that Pacific coast is too deep to put offshore uh, more than a few miles off the coast. And the east coast, it's uh, the, the, there's a there's a continental shelf of note. On the west, it's got to be floating. Uh, shifting on Panasonic. And a couple of others dropping out of the solar market, uh, Andrew. So I'm just wondering if we're ever going to have, outside of China, a solar uh, stock that makes money for people. I think back in over a decade ago, Panasonic was in the top five. But for a long time now, it's been lingering around on only one gigawatt. And now it's finally folded. It's quitting manufacturing by 2022. And it, it'll still sell some stuff. During the last year, you had um, agreements for cell manufacturing fall through with some Chinese company in Malaysia and with Tesla, actually, in California. Maybe it's just that it's just not profitable to manufacture as a Japanese company when the Chinese are doing it so much more efficiently. Uh, and Panasonic's huge. And, and it's just one gigawatt was a, a tiny little part of its business. And so they're just getting rid of it casually. They've got other stuff they can do. And, and including in, in batteries. Yeah. Interestingly, Panasonic was the company which owned all the patents around plasma televisions. I don't know if anyone remembers plasma televisions, they were going to be the replacement for um, cathode ray tube televisions. And they were about eight inches thick, but, but they didn't really have anything sticking out the back. And then LCD came along. Panasonic has a margin that it has to maintain throughout uh, many, many projects from consumer electronics all the way across. If you can't make the margin on it, as I was talking about getting out of plasma televisions, plasma TVs were, were a big thing at one point. They're about eight inches thick, not like LCDs, but they were ahead of LCDs, much better um, uh, colours at the time until LCDs started using LEDs and uh, uh, instead of a backlight. Um, and so plasma TVs were, were from Panasonic's global market leader. Um, eight years later, it was out of televisions because they didn't make it enough money and they didn't have enough money to invest in LCD TV. So, I mean, that's, a, that's typical of the company. It needs profit. And without it, it just shuts businesses, opens new ones. Uh, and it's in the lithium ion market at the moment. How much crossover is there between solar and batteries? Because... You, you also saw this with, um, we saw that with cattle in China, where they were recruiting perovskite researchers. Yeah, and they're, and they're definitely going to be building a, a plant. They're building a pilot plant. And, and, that, and, and if, you know, given the margins we're suggesting, there will be 
our early uh, perovskite that they will probably go on to build a, a volume plant and become part of that uh, community certainly within china whether that'll be they'll globalize it like they have with their battery operations that will yet to be seen but one of the few battery companies that have come out of china and, and have a footprint in america in japan uh, as well as uh, europe so you know, once you've got that footprint, you might as well take all your products there. So I think they could bring their solar. What's the crossover? You're the engineer, Harry. I mean, technically, uh, do you think there's much in the way of an energy cross, uh, a technology crossover? Yeah. So in terms of the actual um, the chemicals that are used in both products, they're often there's often some sort of overlap. I mean, aluminium is used in both. And I think in terms of how the sort of supply chains work, in terms of automation, and in terms of the the volume of individual products you're pushing out it's very much the same obviously they both work on sort of cell size basis so i think once you've got a supply chain for one you've very much got a blueprint for a supply chain for the other and in terms of production capacity yet in terms in terms of where you're hoping to build out your uh, production capacity sort of geographically often those are sort of the same so you've got similar similar size markets in similar in similar places um which is often i think why you see sort of the two tied together it strikes me that um, solar's spending all this time trying to get underneath the, the value proposition of fossil fuels. Uh, it's managed it clearly with coal. It is managing it with gas. When that's finished, there's nothing more. There are no more obstacles. It will start taking profit. It's a very long 25-year play, and it, it will start making profit at some point. There need to be literally a Tesla of the solar market, making a lot of profit and dominating. Or, or a Western Digital would be a better description. You know, Seagate and Western Digital make all the disk drives in the world, and nobody even worries what a disk drive is, but everyone's computer's got one in. So, um, it, it, and their prices haven't come down for 25 years, not not very much. Um, so, so you get the same. At some point, that, that that market's got to reward all the people that stay in it for a long time. There needs to be a giant share price um, out there. Uh, it looks to me like it's, it can only be in China at this stage. So I was a bit shocked when I read the pipeline uh, story from Global Energy Monitor. They, they do a very good detailed job of counting all of the um, oil and gas pipelines. But 18 of the 20 uh, pipelines they talked about were gas pipelines that are either prospect or in prospect or um, or going to final planning and uh, not quite uh, got funding. And they're, they're highlighting a trillion dollars being at risk. And, and it's the same old banks. You know, we hear like Goldman Sachs, oh, we're not going to do fossil fuels anymore. Three billion dollars it's going to put into gas terminals and pipelines. JP Morgan, another three billion dollars. Morgan Stanley, who were saying, oh, coal is ended last week. They're going to put two point eight billion dollars into um, uh, mostly into gas LNG terminals. Uh, Sumitomo Bank, it's Mitsuo. Uh, Japan Bank for International Corporation, Société Générale, the European bank, you know, Credit Agricole, a European bank. All these people collectively, either gas terminals or gas pipelines, putting at risk in new deals, one trillion dollars, most of it in gas, some of it in oil. I I just thought we all passed that. I mean, these guys just can't be trusted. What, what does Biden do about this? What does he do to disincentivize the American banks and to to make the Japanese banks know they won't be welcome in America if they do it? One of the things, one of the other stories we ran was was Harry did looked and, and of course Nord Nord Stream Two is one of those pipelines. Now currently Nord Stream Two is is from Russia into Europe, 
uh, and it copies Nord Stream 1, which is a, a bone of contention for the Americans. They're saying, well, if you have to import gas, don't, for Christ's sake, let the Russians control your economy. You know, take it from us. And we've seen that the French say no, they not, don't want to be involved in American fracked gas. And, and we've seen um, the uh, Americans try to put pressure onto Russia so that Nord Stream 2 fails. Your story, Harry, I think, you know, says it's basically dead. Yeah, so it's a tricky one. I mean, obviously, Nord Stream 2 has become sort of the centre of a geopolitical turmoil, really. It's, unfortunately, it's not actually really anything to do with environmentalism or, or the energy transition. It, the sort of the, the excuse of it being to do with sort of climate change is very much sort of a side thing. Um, and you sort of push other points. Um, obviously, the point from the US is that, I mean, the essential, the reason behind the point that the US is putting across is that the US wants to increase its gas exports to, uh, to, the, to Europe, uh, but it also wants to see sort of Russia's sort of stronghold in Europe also diminished. Um, it's doing this by saying that it's unfair for Nord Stream 2 to be cutting the Ukraine out of the loop, basically. So Ukraine often received quite a lot of fees for transiting, uh, transiting Russian gas. Uh, and obviously through Nord Stream 2, that would be reduced. Um, as a result, the US has imposed a typical amount of sanctions and sort of been throwing them at all sort of companies that it thinks will be involved in Nord Stream 2 or has been in the past. As a result, we've seen a lot of companies uh, pulling out. So I think it was a Swiss company, all seas, uh, sort of last year ended up um, pulling out of its vessels from the project, uh, which ended up cost, uh, costing Gazprom, who uh, obviously developing the project, millions of dollars and sort of delaying the projects um, by nearly a year. And I think as these sort of sanctions continue to ramp up. We'll see more and more delays. Um, obviously, Russia are going to try and complete that project um, and they'll do it, try and do it off their own back. But if US sanctions sort of pull in licensing companies, then that's something that they won't be able to do off their own back. So it'll be interesting to see if the project could get completed from that point, uh, from that perspective. The other dynamic at play is that Europe is becoming very opposed to the project, but more in a stance against Russian politics and sort of the treatment we've seen of whistleblowers like Alexei Navalny. I think that was something that yeah. France came out um, this week and said was that while they've been quite quiet about opposing the project in the past, they actually think that it should be at least paused while Europe sort of re-establishes its relationship with, with Russia and some sort of resolution has come from from what's happened in that sort of political sense. Obviously, that's not necessarily something that we're huge on or rethink energy, but um, it's certainly something that's uh, coming to play with this project. Um, I think for, for Germany... The, the, big problem, the big problem for Europe is this reliance on gas and what we're going to do about it. UK has 85% of its homes using gas for home heat. Germany only has about 48% of its homes that use gas for home heat, that perhaps uses a lot more of it in industry. Whether either of those use gas for electricity generation, that they do to some extent, it's, it's not, it's, it's starting to grow to a halt in, in, in Europe as well as America now. But the gas requirement is really, as you build more homes, they have gas plugged into them automatically. Home heat is inefficient. So if, if the European governments were to grasp the nettle and work on electrical efficiency in the home and home heat transferring to electricity uh, in tandem, uh, this, is the, this, this geopolitical thing doesn't then happen on European soil because the Europeans say we don't need it anyway. 